This is Solastalgia. My name is Sue Ann Harding. My name is Colin Shaw. And this podcast is a series of stories about accidental environmental activism in Northern Ireland. I first came across the word solastalgia when I was reading Robert McFarlane's book, Underland. And solastalgia is a word that was coined by an Australian professor, Glenn Olbrecht, in 2003. And he defines it as a form of psychic or existential distress caused by environmental change. Today in the studio, we're joined with Dr. Nula Flood. Welcome. Very Thank nice very to much. have you here. Thank you, Colin. Perhaps we can start by telling us how you came to know us or meet ah, us. That's a, it's an interesting story. So I was in New York on a Fulbright scholarship, the new school in a, a section of the new school called Urban Systems Lab. And I was looking at um, climate change adaptation and uh, the coastline of Manhattan and how they'd used design approach in looking at the adaptation of the coastline there. Basically, after Hurricane Sandy, there was huge destruction of the coastline and it really kind of hammered home how vulnerable Lower Manhattan was to sea level rise. There was a storm surge of 14 foot and there was um, just huge destruction of public space and housing, 44 people killed. So then the Obama administration at the time decided that they wouldn't just approach this as a kind of rebuilding in with hard infrastructure and an engineering approach that they'd look at all sorts of other approaches, but they'd open it up to a collaborative design competition in the first instance and to look at how they could design places so that they were more resilient. So that's the 10 year anniversary of that was in October this year. So a lot of those projects are now on site after a lot of hard work and energy put into kind of designing those uh, projects. And so I was in New York looking at those on site and thinking about actually what were the specific kind of mechanisms they used to get those projects built and on site and what were the particular issues they faced in terms of getting them built. There's a lot of nature-based solutions along the coast and a lot of building up land so that the sea level rise is held and, and then a lot of berms and parks and public spaces that are designed to be resilient. And so I was looking at all of these projects and at the same time I knew I was coming back to Queen's to teach in the second semester and I have this project called Public Colab where the students work with public bodies and external partners for one week to look at some really tricky, contentious global issue and to see how it becomes a kind of a spatial thing within the context of Belfast. So we've looked at like climate change adaptation for a number of years, given my own research interests in it. And we've looked at like climate futures and different Met Office projections for Belfast and we think about how they might become manifest through say farming or cycling or different public services and we design scenarios around that so it's a one-week project it's come with those kind of projections. So, so the students we're talking about are architecture students? Yes they're architecture students undergraduate first year undergraduate and first year master's architecture students and they work together in teams of between eight and 12 students, depending on how many students are there that year. Together, there's really good energy between the teams. Each of the projects that the students 
developed for that place with that theme has a slightly different flavor or character. So they talk through the projects about the global theme. Can I ask, what was the theme for 2022? <laughs> so for 2022, it was, it was embracing the waterfront in Belfast as public space. The River Lagan. Yeah, River Lagan. I formulated it that way. I had been looking at the Lagan three or four years before that in public collab as well, but more from the perspective of just water and water network. And this year I was more interested in developing ideas around public space as being along the lag and as being a place to provide resilience in the face of rising sea levels and tidal flooding. So you were in New York looking at the winning projects that had been actually built after that competition and you were thinking ahead to how you would come back to Belfast and teach this course to your first years and your MAs. Yes, exactly. And so then I I did what everybody does. I I Googled. I was like, what's happening in Belfast right now? I had this idea of this project and then I found your podcast. So I Googled this. Your first episode had just been aired and I was like, wow, this is pretty amazing. So I stayed up quite late listening through the whole thing and I was like this is amazing but also what was most amazing was the way it captured exactly what I wanted to do. The second episode I think you say towards the end of it we have these spaces that are now left over either side of the wall that we don't know what to do with it and we really need to design them and I was like haha I think I know who can help here (laughs) so I contacted you it articulated everything I was thinking about and I felt like within a week we could actually bring a lot of energy and ideas and people and resources towards this issue of trying to design those spaces either side of the wall or trying to think about how those spaces could contribute to making the city more resilient overall Mm. and just opening up space for creativity around that I thought was brilliant. On the first day of public collab they will students will get a number of presentations. I partnered with Belfast City Council and Dr. Kelly Persick who has been spearheading Older vision for Belfast and one strand of that is called Embracing the Lagan and I'd worked with Callie earlier in the summer on on another piece of work about how we could structure education to better help them so this kind of dovetails with that piece of work and Mara Quigley and who works in the climate change unit in Belfast City Council from the Department for Infrastructure came and told us about the history of, of the Lagan as a piece of infrastructure and why they built the wall that they did, the issues that they had to think about while they were designing that. Um, and we had a presentation from Dr. Andy Bridge, who's from Lagan Valley Regional Park. He's an ecologist. He talked to us a lot about the animals, the Lagan as a green network, or green and blue network. And then the final person was Professor Mark Emerson and also Climate NI as well spoke to us, uh, Dr. Jane McCullough, about climate change projections and broader context of climate change projections and what's happening in terms of adaptation planning for Northern Ireland. Just kind of interesting because adaptation planning for Northern Ireland is specifically related to organisational change at the moment. 
it's not place-based at all. So that's one strand of work that I'm constantly trying to push is to think about adaptation in relation to specific places because mm. the devil is in the detail as mm. your podcast so clearly points out that it's actually, it's the adaptation in specific places where things unravel and where things get lost and we need to work at that detail at really specific places a lot of the stuff I learned from New York was about the fine-grained nature of their flood maps our flood maps are much more rough and loose whereas Mm. in New York because they've had to work with designing these spaces the flood maps are really really fine-grained and at a really small scale you can tell where water is going which we don't have yet. The entire bottom of Manhattan has to be defended from from water if it wants to survive. So there's there's the East uh, River Park is now under construction. And and it's actually interesting. They had a lot of similar issues when they went to build this in terms of they had to cut down trees, uh, but the trees were good for biodiversity and everybody who lived around there had an emotional connection with the trees and it was just the clash of uh, hard en- hard engineering with uh, nature-based solutions and which one wins out in certain places is always quite interesting in that particular stretch of, of it's called the big U in that particular stretch but it, the, the hard engineering approach won out. The, the parallels are the same across the world. Another common theme is a lot of people who live along the waterfront in Manhattan don't want the flood defences because it's going to ruin their view of the water. And of course that has come up in the Belfast situation with the flood wall as well. It's just recurring themes around the place. This this has to happen in New York. It, it, it had to happen or else the city just would not survive, you know, mm. a, another storm. The fine grain nature of, of the, the flood maps is it's, it's just needed. Like it, there's no other way of doing it. It was um, bruising about the tidal flood alleviations game here. There was no run up to it. There was very little in the way of public awareness. And I know there's a body of research around risk awareness and climate change adaptation. How, how do you think that's been going in this particular scheme and, and more generally in, in Northern Ireland? Yeah, it's, it's a very different approach here in that in New York, six, seven years of, of a design process that happened. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of public consultation, a lot of co-design kind of happened along with the design of those public spaces. So it wasn't just designed in isolation. It was designed brought to the community there was a workshop about it then it went back for a second third fourth fifth sixth iteration and all of those iterations are recorded online as well so you've got uh, video files now of consultation processes around designing different parts of the flood alleviation scheme in new york so obviously we don't have that. It is interesting when you look at the figures, the lag in tidal flood alleviation scheme was 16 million. I don't think it was approached here as a public space design. It was designed as a piece of infrastructure. The idea of thinking about the riverfront as public space for the public good, for multiple users as a biodiversity network. I don't think that, that, that has happened. Um, and, and I can understand 
there there are limitations to to funding and yeah I think there has to be a change in uh, understanding of public space for the public good the lagging as a, as a as a huge public space in the city part of this is uh, trying to get the students to understand that they're not just students they're actually citizens here mm-hmm. and I think sometimes they're never seen as active members of the city and civic life so reframing it just slightly that in that way like that they have a voice and they have not just architectural skills but just as a citizen they have a voice in terms of what happens to public space so that was one they firstly they had to look at a section of the river so each student group looked at a different section of the river so they'd look at it from their own perspective as student citizen, from the perspective of a marginalised user, I was calling it. Um, so this was just a user who might get forgotten in the noise out there. So somebody with limited mobility, uh, somebody who's afraid of the dark, somebody who, um, somebody who likes to row, somebody who likes to run, a child, an older person. They each had a marginalised user and... Then also they had to look at the site from the perspective of an animal fisher bird that inhabited the river or the riverfront or that area of the city. So, for example, a seal or a a red squirrel, which we know was endangered, a linnet. Bats, yes. Mm. So with the bats, they had to look at it perspective of somebody who's afraid of the dark, but also bats. So they have (laughs) this tension between needs, they designed these mobile lights that you could pick up for yourself, but you're also not disturbing the bats. When you think about it, it would be, could be quite beautiful um, lanterns moving along mm. the edge of the mm. lagging. Absolutely. Mm. And it would remove that need for that public uh, lighting. Yeah. Imagine. Yeah. It, could be, it could be quite beautiful. And they produce these beautiful visuals of just people moving along the riverfront with their little mm. lantern. And I mean, it's just so poetic. And mm. you kind of wonder, hmm, why not, actually? Why, why well, not? That was a, so you, Nula kindly invited myself and Suan to come to the workshop, yeah. so the, the reveal presentations. So I, was, I made it down. And there were 10 projects from memory, yeah, was it? 11, yeah. 11. They were each given, was it seven minutes? Yeah. Time carefully. Slowly dawned on me that this was just absolutely an amazing project. And it was a mixture of, you say, poetry and science and yeah. engineering. And they moved down the river from basically the river mouth to Sermilis Bridge, the, the latest one. And just what struck me was that every single one was an improvement over what's there. I mean, I suppose that was the point, yeah. but a significant improvement. And yeah. it just made me realise how bad it is, you know, mm. and badly needed good design is oh, along yeah. the river. What we have now, especially that newer section with the title for the alleviation, it's so impoverished yeah. in terms of what was there or what will ever be there because it's just it's completely, you know, cemented over. And every single idea was seemed to be to be possible and wonderful and you just I felt like this is great and oh god (laughs) (laughs) too late that had to be part of it in that they had to grapple with the wall is now there what do we do now what next and I think some of the projects had very very simple things like just grow wildflowers 
between the cyclists and the cars. Mm. It's just so simple. Mm -hmm. Other ones were more ambitious, like the swimming pontoons that were going to filter the lagging water. And, you know, it can happen. These things mm -hmm. do exist. And there's, there's ones in Copenhagen and Helsinki. There's one plan for New York. Like, it's not like this can't happen, but it needs a lot more. But, you know, like the, the planting of the seed bombing, the cycleways, like that seems pretty simple, you know, or benches and chairs and chairs that have, you know, planting integrated into them. And even looking at the exact trajectory of the wall and identifying, is there like a little triangle of space that we can actually do something with here? Mm -hmm. I think that's actually quite powerful. But then there's there's other ideas that are completely novel and new about like the, the lanterns. It'd just be a beautiful thing. Why not? So where's the gap? Why is that gap so immense between what is? That was a design at one stage. That's what Belfast got in 2022. Hmm. And then what we saw was like the potential. Yeah. Why, why is the gap so absolutely huge, do you think, without banging on about the DFI, of course? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know why. I really don't. But I do think it starts with ambition. And I think that's part of the project is building up ambition and vision for actually our own city and where we're at. I think, you know, a lot of the focus in Belfast for many years was on other things, peacekeeping and dealing with uh, segregated communities. And I think, yes, that's absolutely was the most important thing at that time. But now we're at a different time and there needs to be a greater ambition for our public spaces. But I also think it's slightly tied to how people relate to public space here in that it was a scary place to be back in the troubles. People didn't sit on outside cafes having coffees because it was scary to be outside drinking coffee. That has changed and it's changed all over the world, I guess, like that, that kind of culture of being in public space. So I think I think, yeah, it's it's ambition for public space and for ourselves. Actually, mm. we need better. We mm. need a better waterfront. We deserve it. Like. Mm -hmm. And it's starting to build that base of that would demand better and that would demand public space that that is good for all, not just keeping the water back which mm. we need of course mm -hmm. but we also need mm. it to be a nice place for humans and for us so the students were given a brief they were given a section of the river what did you have cards or something and they pulled them out and they were like oh we have section three and we have to take <laughs> care of the bats and someone who <laughs> so it was a bit of a lottery right yeah what did they do did you go with them do they just go on their own they go on their own like architecture students were very used to going on site visits you know so things that we talked about as in look too close to the water um, stay on the footpath um, but they go out they have a map each section of the river corresponds to a different ordnance survey map of the river it's 11 sections of it that's why there was 11 projects roughly the, the city according to the OS map has 11 sections of the waterfront so they take their map their cameras their notebooks their sketchbooks and they go out always in groups that's one thing we do require that they don't go alone to the site they go mm. during the daytime and they look at it with their own or from their own perspective then they'd look at it from the perspective of the user group that they were 
mm. dealt mm. and then also the bird animal or fish mm. and looking at it from the perspective of the bird animal or fish required them to obviously research about of course like the needs of that particular creature yeah yeah, yeah exactly so um so they would have researched that first and then kind of critiqued the the riverfront from that perspective so for instance like the group who were looking at the seals seals need actually like places to rest uh, that are easy to get up on so they would have ended up designing seal islands along the swimming pool interventions so they had to design for both swimmers and seals because swimmers don't like to near seals because they're actually quite aggressive so you know there was there was two interventions that kind of played off each other one was a little ledge for seals to rest on and then there was a pool for for other people for instance another group had to look at people who use wheelchairs and butterflies and actually how can you make an intervention that's good for both they looked at the bridge in city center and they looked at actually planting along the bridge and what height that planting would be at and how you could come up to that planting even though you're you're using a wheelchair and how you can get close to the butterflies mm-hmm. yeah then another group was looking at like seagulls and cyclists you know the seagulls are seen to be a bit of a nuisance down mm-hmm. in the docklands mm-hmm. so they designed specific kind of refuges places of refuge for the seagulls and and then also a kind of an improved cycling track that went through different gardens mm-hmm. because it's, there's a distinct lack of green space and wild nature in that area of the city as well. So yeah, so they go out with the brief, they you map the site from those three perspectives, then come back to the studio, analyze that kind of work, look at actually where you can put an intervention so that you get maximum value out of your interventions. It's called urban acupuncture. That's yeah. really cool, actually. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I didn't make up the term. It's uh, Jamie Lerner in Curitiba made up that term back in the 90s. When you place something within the city, it should have maximum mm. second order effect mm. for a positive gain for those bigger agendas that I talked about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they'd come up with a number of sketch proposals. So that's all, all happens on the Tuesday. Then on the Wednesday, they'll present those sketch proposals in a rapid fire presentation session. Myself and, and colleagues will talk through different ideas and say, actually, there's potential in that one. Maybe a little bit of that with a little bit of this. And there's something there. I think that's really valuable and interesting, exciting. And then on the Thursday of the project, they generally spend that day really working up the idea. And then the Friday is is making the presentation and then submission by one o'clock and then celebration of the results from two to four. Yeah, I love that it's end focused. You have to come up with a plan and you have to present that plan, not just a kind of an essay about what you might do or what hypothetically is probably needed or something. I really like that action, maybe because I'm not in architecture, but I really (laughs) kind of admire that we're going to do this and we're going to do it now and it has to be done by one o'clock on Friday. (laughs) I mean, it's it's really good. Mm -hmm. And those constraints actually force people to work together, I imagine, and the students to work together and to solve problems and to, you have to come up with something. You can't just go, well, yeah, we had a few ideas, but we don't really know. Yeah. Yeah. It's great. It is. It is. It it is the architecture training. Mm. It's it's quite project focused always. Students would be well used to working in this way. You know, and it's okay to propose something that 
maybe isn't appropriate, but can spark off other discussions and ideas as part of the project as well, is that we produce, like outputs are made public through a Creative Commons license. So the idea then is that other people can pick up on the ideas and build on them. As long as they reference the collective who produced them, everybody who was involved in public collab, mm. including, including yourselves, you're, you're part of the, the oh. voice or the collective voice. It's a, it's a really kind of normal way for for okay. architects to work. It was very helpful that there was a lot of visuals. That's always great for as a lay person. Technical drawings or flood plans and that, that can be kind of uh, very off-putting. But the, the wonderful sketches and the almost like comic books that some of the presentations contained were, were very inspiring and you could see it. For example, remember the section along Molly Rose Way? Yeah. That was uh, like a boardwalk would yeah. connect the, the towpath to Molly Rose Way going behind the boat clubs and the Cottesworth pub. Yeah. And it was lovely. And then below it was a sort of oyster um, beds, wasn't it? It was, Clear. A, it was a mussel farm. Mussel farm cleaning. So Clean. floating pontoons. So yeah. the towpath would become floating mm. pontoons out so, onto the yeah. river. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. And with mm. mussels underneath yeah. that were filtering the water. Yeah. Mm. I, I remember when you told me about that. I just love that idea. Although I can yeah. see lots of kids falling in <laughs> <laughs> i know and there's 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 issues around like animal welfare and, and mussels and yeah there's 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 bits to be worked out but i think it it was quite it was quite yeah visually compelling the mm -hmm. idea that there would be these floating pontoons and that sense of imagination because when yeah. you told me about that i kind of visualized it and i was just like mm -hmm. wow mm -hmm. how fun would that mm -hmm. be yeah. yeah yeah so that sense of imagination like and ambition again you're yeah. back to that word that i love yeah. that word ambition and, yeah. and it is kind of the dearth of ambition that there is given drawing board or was there no sort of budget constraints for just given imagination and, and the, their training yeah they were coming up with things that were you know were literally almost brought tears to my eyes you know what, what yeah. could be i know, you know? And, and and the ability as i say to put visuals mm. against this is just so fantastic it it's suddenly like the bolder vision for belfast is quite ambitious but it lacks site specificity mm. and it lacks the matching the ambition in words to the ambition designed in places. Mm -hmm. And that's what that visual did. It was really quite heroic. Mm -hmm. it's, it's really quite fascinating what people can come up with, but also the power of an image to hold people together and to focus the conversation, I guess. With the flood wall as it as it is, it doesn't, even if you look at the consultation documents, they were black and white section drawings. They didn't describe the atmosphere, mm. actually how it would look over time. What's the quality of the space, both sides of the wall? Who can see over the wall? Who can not see over the wall? Where does the wall meet the grass? What happens there? Why is the why is it a kind of a forty five degree pointed coping on top of it? Is that hospitable to us as the citizens of the city to sit on, to lean against? To you, you came up with the when we were standing there. You said, "How could somebody set their baby on the top of that mm -hmm. wall and tie their your other kid's shoelace?" Yeah, and I thought that summed it up for me. Yeah, it wasn't designed. If it was designed for anything, it certainly wasn't that. No, it was designed to not sit on it. It was mm -hmm. designed to not use it. It was designed not to run along the top of it. It was designed to not have fun. Mm -hmm. It was designed in the negative, not in the positive. It wasn't mm -hmm. designed to be an addition to the city. It well, it was designed to keep water out, but it could have done so much more. 
And that's where we have to kind of take the conversation to. Can I ask your students, did they give you any feedback? So they were obviously very project oriented. Did they give you any sort of insight into the way they, what they were seeing, their kind of judgment of what is today? Yeah, like they do. They they respond and they'll respond from like a personal perspective of, you know, well, I'm quite short. I can't see over the wall. Like, mm. But they respond through the designs and mm. through the work. You can see the critiques in all sorts of things that they have done, like a simple thing like cladding. The flood wall is a is a concrete kind of inner structure with a big footing, as you described so accurately in your, your podcast. But it's clad in brick. But like why new bricks? Why not like recycled bricks from all of the demolished buildings from all over the city? There is a, an architectural salvage yard in, in East Belfast that has tons of fabulous bricks. Why not those bricks? You know, like there would have been history and a memory there. Like, so when students kind of respond by saying, actually, we propose that it's that the rest of the wall is clad in a different kind of brick. That in itself is a mm. critique of the existing brick, mm, you know, so they express themselves through their work. Mm -hmm. The same with the lighting along mm. the lagging, like a lot of the female students talked about how they felt they were particularly vulnerable in different parts of the city because of lighting and how they wouldn't go to certain parts of the city. And in a way, them talking about the kind of the need for light is a critique. Mm. The same with the people who looked at the, the seagulls and the, the need for seagulls having a refuge somewhere that's not near the cyclists. They talk through their work, but they also do submit a piece of text with the project that is good for recording how they were thinking about the project. But I always find that the text flattens out mm -hmm. the bigger conversation and the bigger ambitions of the projects because they immediately go into school performance mode, I think. Mm -hmm. So I actually just ask them to bullet point the text so that they don't feel they're having to write something to keep me happy. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's interesting. Do any of them respond to you during the course of the week or at the end or afterwards in more general terms about the climate, about... Perhaps some of those questions that you were asking this generation of young people and how they respond to the climate crisis facing us and their future and all of these bigger questions. Do any of them comment on that or draw wider conclusions or is it a transformative experience at all? I don't know is the answer, but you do see some of the ideas reappear in their work which I always take as like a nice evolution of things. So they'll go back and do, the MRC students will do uh, another 12 weeks working on their dissertation for that year, or their dissertation project. And oftentimes you, you see themes reemerge. Or sometimes I've had students quote stuff from the project back to me. Yeah, so you, you see it kind of come back through that way. But I feel like trying to kind of measure the impact mm. is or elicit something yeah. out of them yeah it, it's better to yeah see where it goes see yeah. let them take it you don't want to be dogmatic about right and now are you all really tuned up to the yeah. demands of the climate on yeah. you future architects yeah, yeah exactly in architecture we declared climate emergency back in 2019 
the image that we used to promote architecture declaring a climate emergency at Queen's was a public collab image from a couple of years before that Mm -hmm. where we looked at making triptychs that described future climate change scenarios for Belfast. All of the architecture projects since we declared that have been somehow addressing the climate emergency but that's a that's a really broad topic for architecture and it ranges from you know adaptive reuse projects to looking at energy efficiency to looking at climate futures in specific places to looking at like sustainable food production Mm. you know so Mm. everybody kind of has a voice within that and where that came from was really from a student body at the time wanting yeah, so and it came from there was a there was a movement in the UK called Architects Declare where all architects declared climate emergency and then a lot of schools then declared climate emergency after that declaration. But then there was a demand from students to take this more seriously as well. So we have um the Architects Climate Action Network that has been active since. Sometimes it's more active than other times, but they would organise lectures and lecture series. So this is part of a bigger discussion. Mm, mm. And there's a lot of us in architecture who are very active in promoting this, but always with a flavour that kind of aligns with the research interest that Mm. you're doing anyway. Mm. But buildings account for 40% of global greenhouse gas emissions. Kind of have to do something. Mm. Can I ask actually just a technical question? So if you're designing today, say a building, say a skyscraper, something like that, do architects today factor in global warming, the effects of global warming? You, you know, in the same way as if you're going to design a park for 100 years, you would have to think carefully about the type of trees. Is that part of design today? Yeah, specific climate futures, I'm not sure how they get embedded into models. They wouldn't have, say, 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. We would train the students to think about changed climates when they're designing here. Like the easiest way to get them to think about changed climates is through water mm-hmm. and the different kind of ways water will be behaving. So oftentimes I'll site a project near a body of water so that they have to engage with sea level rise and that forces them to think about time and long distance futures. Mm-hmm. Usually up to 2100, because that's where the Met Office projections land at for Belfast. So 2100 is five to six degree temperature rise uh, on a high emissions scenario and 98 centimetres of sea level rise. That's here. In different parts of the world, it's it's different. Say in New York, it's nearly double that for Mm -hmm. sea level rise. So in that way, you're already prompting Mm -hmm. students to think about climate futures. But obviously, then there's so many other ways that you need to think about it. So you need to think about, like, say, passive solar gain and how that's going to work. And are you designing it so that passive solar gain and passive solar gain is basically sunlight coming into a building and coming through an opening. If you through windows and heating up everything and yeah. you can't open the window, right? Yeah, and you can't open the window. That would be like a no no, you know, mm-hmm. like you, you need to but design it's pretty it. standard for yeah, most pretty, skyscrapers yeah. built like Canary Wharf and all those places I imagine. Yeah, exactly. But they should be designed in such a way if they don't have shading devices now, shading devices can be retrofitted. But obviously if windows open outwards you can't fit shading devices in, right, yeah. in in every way that you potentially should be able to. We would always ask the students to think about those changed climates. And, and a simple thing to do would be to map to different locations. So Belfast is going to be like Bordeaux. Does How does that affect how we think about the design of this space? Because it's going to be around at the time 
where that is likely to be the conditions that we're living in. Different people project different kind of scenarios. So some people would say we're just going to be like Cardiff. Other people say Bordeaux. Or we're already like Cardiff, aren't we? Uh, yeah, I would have said, yeah. but that's, I think it's quite a conservative estimate. Mm. We would, but it's an, it's an evolution, really. Mm. Um, and I don't know if it's standard practice uh, to think in that way. I don't think it would be an architecture practice, but maybe in the modelling of the mechanical and electrical equipment and how that will work. Mm-hmm. There's that's quite specific. We are thinking that mm-hmm. way, and we're pushing those ideas. So going back to the, the for episode number one, and are reminiscing about that initial periods of what's going on, and realizing it was a tidal flood, learning what a tidal flood was, and then started pouring over these reports and consultation documents, and then looking at these sort of projections of twenty, one hundred and was a two hundred year event. Model for so projecting yourself into the future, and we were all looked like baffled at this calculations and these the fact that okay, public bodies are really taking this seriously, they're going to build a wall that's going to protect us for the next 150 years or whatever it was 200 mm. years, and then thinking, wait a minute, this is going to be around for a couple of hundred years, mm. and that's a big conversation, kind of a shock, you know, we're seeing the, the city being disrupted and changed around that. But also realizing that it's going to be there for 200 years and there won't be any trees there anymore. And that was the real mm. kick in the teeth yeah. that we were all we all experienced. That's the future. The future with adaptation looks terrible. We hate it. You know, it's just <laughs> awful. Why is this? And that's why we got started. But isn't that that gap in imagination? Because it doesn't have to, like all of these other different possibilities of how things can be managed. It's very hard to think about the future in such huge terms, but when a tree that's been there for 90 years is felled, you know that that's adding to the problem because we all know about oxygen and biodiversity mm. and, and the microecologies that are all around that. So it just seems so brutal that these things happening right in front of you take place for the sake of this abstract future that we can't even imagine. Mm. And then when we see their future, exactly, we see their imagination for it and it's this wall that you can't sit on or put your child on while you yeah. do up your shoelace is even more horrifying, I think, than the future that we're kind of heading towards, it I seems suppose. to add to the confusion around what the future will be. And Yeah, I could only imagine that what happened was that the, the projections are so stark that there must have been some kind of panic and we need to do something. We need to do something now and we need mm-hmm. to take control here and we're going to going to do this. We're going to build the wall. It has to be built. It has to be built now. What's mm-hmm. the budget we have? Let's do it. Let's just go, go, go. I can only imagine that's what happened. I guess it's to open up that conversation and to say that's not what's happening everywhere. There's different approaches mm. that are happening. People are been trusted to give feedback and constructive feedback and they have tacit knowledge about areas and there is history and there is value and there is interest and the public good and actually we might need to think about how we can make these more open processes with different ways of looking at it as public space and as a public community like Mm -hmm. that's what it is do you know what's maddening is that now it's gone 
we got, I have so many photos of it now, but mm -hmm. I have very few. I don't think I have any personal photos of those trees before. If they'd given us a little bit of warning, if there was a consultation process, we could have recorded those trees and taken nice photos and yeah. been able to take it in. Well, I think this this is part of it. And talk to a couple of different people about designing for climate brief is another part of it that would have been quite legitimate to do up front in the project. There is a percent for art scheme where public infrastructure has a certain amount of money that, that goes towards an art scheme that would be completed as part of the project. So you could have imagined that there could have been a kind of a grieving process. If mm -hmm. the trees really needed to go, that needs to be a designed process and the recognition that people are attached and emotionally attached to places and trees and green spaces and that we might need to design a, a deconstruction process. That's a design task as well. Mm. Designing for climate grief is going to be a reoccurring theme as well. But I think part of it is, and this is something that I, I found in New York, is that people are quite fluent in knowing about sea level rise and what it is and where it's critical and where it's not. So there is an education piece as well. And we do have flood maps and I, but it's not that easy to read. It's not that easy to kind of really understand what the different scenarios are. I think that we deserve to kind of have that explained to the public at large in a clearer way. I would agree because there seems to be many of these flood alleviation schemes. Many. There is one down at Newcastle, which I think they've finished now. The Newry Oaks were felled for a flood alleviation scheme. I saw Any another coastal area, I presume. That there was one. The, I, d I saw a thing on Twitter about a public consultation happening soon about what a flood alleviation sc scheme in. Yeah, was it? Put it down. And mm. I just thought, wow, they're everywhere. Mm. But where and why? And is the flood threat inland the same as it is here at the mouth of the Lagan? It seems very. Yeah, there was no talk about it. And suddenly the whole country of Northern Ireland is yeah. building flood alleviation walls with yeah. no information or no consultation. Uh, yeah, I, I do find it a little yeah. bit strange. And I think, you know, it, it can only be to everyone's benefit that everybody gets to develop a knowledge about mm -hmm. this and a fluency about it because it is a language we're going to have to deal with. Climate change is coming. It's going to be a changed world. We need to prepare for it. But you need to bring people along you need to kind of help people understand what exactly are the risks what are the different options and what are we going to do with the risks that are presented to us like mm. it's not it's not that i would be denying the risks at all and and change will need to happen but it's what kind of change for what place for what purpose and thinking about the bigger picture public space mm. the public good mm. and public knowledge you said too about people know places so Sure, on one hand, bringing people along with you, but on the other hand, listening to the people who live in those places and have lived in yeah. those places and care about those places, don't want them to be flooded. And yeah, yeah so a, a kind of a real mutual back and forth. Uh, yeah, and a kind of a mutual, respectful conversation about this. It's not that people wouldn't understand that a flood wall needed to be built. Yes, we know a flood wall needs to be built, but... Where and in what mm -hmm. way and clad in what way and is it a flood wall or would a berm have been better mm. or a berm? What is uh, you've used that before? A berm like a mound of earth okay. that you know you could plant things yes, on. Yes, yeah. You yeah. Could yeah. Roll down a hill, mm. you know. Like I mean, 
it's something else. It's not just a wall. I don't believe that the same solution is necessarily the right solution in every single scenario. So, you know, but that happens through fully fleshed out design process that designs the entire a landscape as a public space. Mm. There's another context that comes back into most of our conversations is that the backdrop to our case or cause was COVID. And there was an appreciation of the risk to the public that became a national obsession. Mm. You know, we were always talking about the probabilities. We were trying to understand you know, the science of contagion and the communication, those sort of daily news Count. The and daily count, yes, and the press conferences and all this communication. Flattening the curve and oh, suddenly we all became fluent in virology. Yeah, like. Exactly. <laughs> well, vir- not quite fluent, yeah. but we developed an aptitude to understand science to a certain level. And I think the same will happen with climate change projections. You know, it has happened in New York. Mm. You can see public notices that describe a section through the bottom of Manhattan and sea level rise as like a vertical line on a sectional drawing. People understand that this is the risk. Therefore, we have to build a wall that's five foot mm-hmm. here. But then there's a secondary risk from storm surge. So we have a firm backup, further backup in the site that will catch the storm surge. People understand that spatial risk because it's been explained through those drawings that are in parks all over the place, on notice boards, everywhere. They understand that the sea level rise risk is related to emissions scenarios. And I mean, that can only be good for getting us towards net Mm. zero anyway, you know, Mm. if you you have that translation of that risk to those dimensions. I feel like that's not where the conversation is at here. It isn't... There hasn't been that kind of clear communication of what those risks are and how they'll be manifest in certain places. And that's a missed opportunity for everyone because Mm. everyone deserves to be part of this conversation about adaptation. Everybody should be. And I guess that's part of public collab as well is building that base that can demand actually to have these issues out thoroughly discussed and dissected in a public discussion. What was also bruising about the whole episode was that obviously it seems that the DFI were taking climate change, rising sea levels, very, very seriously, Mm. putting serious money behind it. But the other biodiversity, that was completely absent from Mm. the conversation. And that was the scary bit. We were fighting Mm. for the trees in almost like a quixotic way yeah. This odd annoyance in the background that sometimes they dealt with these sort of public meetings. But that didn't seem to be registering at all. Now, I do note that the DFI had their first biodiversity awareness conference when they invited themselves around the table and, uh, and a guest speaker, somebody mm-hmm. from Ulster Wildlife, I believe. Just from their Twitter feed, it looked like they were telling each other how well they were doing on that front. Or... Mm-hmm. Let's be generous. They were starting a discussion. That was the most baffling part, the absence of discussion on biodiversity. I know, and, and, and that's, that's why I had the students look at the, mm-hmm. the sites from the perspective of a bird, animal, fish, so mm-hmm. that we could start to talk about the value of these spaces for wildlife and birds, but also in a really specific way, like which animals, which birds, mm-hmm. in what area, for what purpose, what do mm-hmm. we need? You know, so we kind of moved the conversation on a little bit, talking about 
about specifics because I think yeah the devil is always in the detail I think the biodiversity hasn't been talked about as much yet in terms of local government and civil service in Northern Ireland at least but I think that it is coming a higher objective in the agenda so it's only going to become more because it's, it is also a crisis you know I can understand that it's another complex issue mm. on top of a, an already complex issue and it's really tricky work and it's a really tricky place to be in but you know we have to address the complexity of the situation we're in there's no point in hoping it's not there it is there biodiversity isn't going to be dealt with isn't going to happen so you might as well actually start dealing with the reality of the situation which is people don't want to lose biodiversity we can't we have to come up with a plan that incorporates it it's difficult yes of course it's difficult but Unfortunately, that's where we're at. We've had Jesuan and I, and with Peter Cush, subsequent to mm. our previous conversation with Peter, we actually met with some of these engineers to talk about the restoration of the Singing Hedge, what yeah. we call in the episode the Silent Hedge, and how ill-equipped, I would like to say, the engineers were in talking meaningfully about restoration of biodiversity in that site. That's not what they're trying to do at all. No. So it didn't make for a very good conversation. But I, I can I can totally understand that because they are engineers, but the response isn't to just limit the design team to just engineers. It's actually that it has to be opened out to landscape designers, planting specialists and landscape conservationists. They need to be brought into the fold. And that's another takeaway that I took from New York and their experience was that it's a much bigger design team because mm. it's a different problem and it's more complex and you will need to have climate modelers in there working with landscape designers and botanists mm. and landscape conservationists and hydrologists and like yeah. just it's just a lot more people have to be involved. Yeah, because each person sees yeah. something different. Yes. So you need that kaleidoscope yeah. eyes. Yeah. So that you don't just see this is a flat place I can build a wall or this is near a river. You need to see everything and you need to see that the hedge is there and it's full of sparrows and it works with the other hedge and people yeah. walk here it's yeah. a multifaceted thing so the more people who can be part of that conversation or so that the architects you're training can have that vision if you like to yeah. think of all of those yeah different things yeah is certainly part of beginning these bigger conversations. I yeah. think so. And I think there also has to be space for it to be okay for the engineers to say, mm -hmm. we don't know the yeah. answer, actually. We need help. Yeah. We need more money to employ yeah. different people to help us with this problem. But I don't think that conversation had begun. Mm. I, think, I think it was a reaction to rising sea levels and the reaction of increased surface water. And the reaction was to build a wall. It was a solution, but it wasn't a holistic solution. There has to be a change in the kind of the education of engineers as well, so that they know when to say they don't know and that that's okay. It, they don't have to it's know. Let me say that I'm guessing, but I would have thought that a tidal flood wall is right up their street because it's volumes of water, it's projections, it's models. It can all be done statistically mathematically and there is an answer and that answer was the wall and it's absolutely fantastic and when we met with the again with the engineers in the earlier days the frustration that was on in their 
faces talking to us. Yeah. They were saying, literally, they'd done their job. What more did we want? What was your problem? And we got this sort of caricaturing their answer was, do you want people to drown in their beds? Yeah. You know, that it's either this or significant damage to people and property. Yeah. And so we weren't, we weren't understanding the risk whatsoever. And the gap there, it hasn't got any smaller. But at least it became visible to us. You know, that's why we yeah. became accidental activists and, yeah. and tried to sort of start these conversations and listen to you and, and to others about what to do. Yeah. What, how can we do things differently? It's not that I have all the answers either, mm. but my perspective is from quality public space. I'm, I'm a space person, mm. whereas somebody else will be fully about biodiversity only. But it's actually that everybody has some part of the answer. But overall, it's understanding it as a public amenity mm. and public space. And it's a shared space as well. So I, I don't know, like the immediacy of the risk, if they really needed to roll it out that quickly. But that would be interesting to. The photos they used to illustrate the risk of flooding was a, was a river flood. It wasn't tidal flood. And I'm not questioning their projections, but mm. it was a one in 200 year event, 1.4 meter tidal flood surge. Mm. You know, we don't want to be denying the science over that. I think it's, it was down to, you know, like I said, ministerial, you know, chairs. <laughs> they were having, they had minister, they were on their sixth minister. Yeah. It started off with a 2008 under one. They were mm. three years of no minister at all. Then they had Nicola Mallon, who seemed to be, let's go. And then with COVID. So straight out of the gates when things were greenlit super quick and they just went for it. Mm -hmm. So I think it was also a kind of a, maybe there was like this, maybe someone's going to fall again. You know, we've got a minute mm -hmm. at last. Let's get the hell on with these things. And this is late capitalism as well. So the mm -hmm. private company who mm -hmm. won the tender to build the wall and mm -hmm. the many other walls across the country will probably have limits as to how long they can wait for their money and their... Oh, yeah. Projects and things like that. So the machinations that are all whirring behind everything. I know. But it, it does come back to, I think, having a public that actually demands better mm -hmm. and demands more for the public space and the public dimensions. Like, and that that's where we have to start from. Well, when did you start? Oh, when did I? <laughs> where <laughs> when did, did I start? start? Yeah, when was your first understanding that, you know, you, uh, environmental activism or the environment or you know you're, you're sort of um, personal yeah. my, my very 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 first project was when I was nine I lived on a hill that was called Ardandra or the hill of the oaks but there was no oak trees and mm. I was really really taken with this where what about the trees we need the oxygen and it was all about the ozone layer at the time so I decided I was going to plant an oak forest which mm. I started back in 1989 <laughs> and um, I, I don't have that many trees but some so it started from there and then I studied architecture and I was always interested in I guess the environmental side of things and then I worked in practice for a number of years my first job was working mostly for private clients which I didn't really enjoy and I worked for the public sector which I enjoyed much more and then I went to work for an architecture firm that was specifically focused on sustainable design and that was brilliant and I loved that and I would have been happy there probably forever but then the great recession happened and all architects found themselves without employment um, pretty much so I decided I would go back and do a PhD in sustainable urban development 
so I did that and specifically I looked at participatory design and sustainable urban development and the overlap between the two and the need for participation in any sustainable urban design project that would take in public space and I worked with a design activist group called Designing Dublin as part of my PhD and analysed their methods. So they were this big group of ambitious young designers in the greatest recession of all time with loads of energy mm. uh, worked with a lot of people from Dublin City Council together they came up with short-term design proposals for a public space in inner city Dublin to enliven the city centre in, in a way that was I guess good for people and it had it had kind of currents of and kind of flavours of sustainable design in there as well so I guess I analysed that as part of my PhD and then I, I did it through geography and engineering, actually, the PhD. I had this broader perspective on the world and on sustainable development. And I really wanted to bring that back to architecture and be the person in architecture who talked about buildings and discrete projects within a bigger context. So I kind of decided I, that was the perfect job. And then I got this job and there was scope to make this job that uh, into that kind of agenda and that's how I have started it you know so I started like in Queen's eight years ago and I did a lot of projects that were about climate change projections before anybody was really interested in this I remember presenting at conferences and there was like two people in the room because nobody really cared <laughs> and wow. then all of a that's sudden only eight years ago yeah that is interesting isn't it yeah, yeah. like specifically about climate change projections yeah. they weren't interested yeah. in in those things and I, I did all sorts of, I remember having a workshop in Derry that was with writers and we looked at flood maps for Derry and uh, looked at projections and then wrote these fictional futures, these mm. um, based in the flooded world of Derry, which was kind of mixing narrative future fictions with architectural representations of climate futures. That's fantastic, though. That's that mix of the arts that we were touching on, I think, before this idea of imagination or kaleidoscope imagination. But I love the idea, going back to your oak trees, yeah. that it was the name of the place yeah. that held a memory of yeah. what that place had once been before. Yeah. And it was enough for you as a nine-year-old girl to go, there should be oak trees here. I'm yeah. going to change that and yeah. make oak trees grow here again. Yeah. I really love that. I really yeah, love because we've talked before about how the language of the land and the townlands here hold this knowledge, yeah. this local knowledge of what should be there. So yeah. I really love that. And then the idea of you getting together with writers and yeah. using story and narrative to imagine a future or imagine a better future or imagine a dystopian future that we yeah. want to choose not to head towards. Yeah, and it was it was quite interesting because in, in that writer's workshop, I had three writers came with me, really, really talented writers, and they wrote pieces. Two, one was kind of somewhere 
we'll say wasn't wasn't it was neither a utopian or dystopian it was a world where things were different and people used boats a lot more and then one was completely dystopian and it was about yeah just right up to the dairy walls was was flooded you know and the bog side became the bog side again and then another one was quite utopian and it was it was kind of ecotopian future I guess and I did then some work with the students following on from that where the students would write dystopian futures for places and then design against that Mm -hmm. but actually slowly kind of started to realize that the most productive thing was to actually use your time to think of better futures and um, to focus on that because it's so easy to do dystopian it's it's Mm. a little bit a little bit more difficult but more constructive I think to do utopian futures Uh, I agree and I heard on the radio just the other day someone saying there is no future as in a single thing we're heading towards the future that we choose yeah it's not just this inevitable fateful thing that's just there and we're careering towards it it hasn't happened yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So for as long as it hasn't happened, we can still choose a different future from this dystopian kind of imagination. Yeah. yeah. So I, re- I really like, and that's the promise, I suppose, of the work that your students did, that yeah. single image that suddenly opens up your mind to something better, something that could be completely different, imagining a better future. Yeah. Have you introduced the opposite of solastalgia into a conversation? Which is this... Ecotopian. Ecotopian. Oh, yeah. Eco- yeah, so yeah. a place where you can hope for rather than yeah. mourn, which yeah. is the kind of the dominant theme. Yeah, but yeah. So that's a nice, that's a very nice thought, yeah. Yeah, there's, ah. a, there's a book in 1972, a novel by, I think the author's called Ernst Kallenbach, and it's Ecotopia, and it's okay. a story about California being this ecotopian land, and mm. it describes every element of that society from the way transport works to the way food works to the way games works it's a kind of an awkward novel in many ways but it's mm-hmm. quite brilliant in, yeah. in many other ways it's a lovely way to think you know yeah. obviously you, you're going to do it for so long it's, it's going to be a disaster for very very many people I guess my final question would be whether you see yourself as an activist <laughs> I, I honestly I wouldn't if I'm honest I think I think a lot of architecture education works like this and I kind of think I'm just doing my job in many ways because I think architecture it is a civic thing it is for the public good there's always a public side of any architecture project there has to be an outside because it protects people from the outside at a really fundamental level so therefore it has to have this responsibility to the public good and it has this collective responsibility. So it's really quite fundamental to the practice of architecture is to think about public good. And it's just an expansion of that. I probably do a lot of work that is specifically focused on like bigger and bigger and bigger public good issues. But I think all architectural educators would probably work in that way somewhat. There was a time like when I was in university where we would always get a brief for a project that was a hypothetical mm. brief for a hypothetical, usually for a site, but a hypothetical client. And it lacked that connection to the real world and real world issues. And there has been a shift in architectural education towards what they call live projects, which is dealing with you know a real client, a, a real problem in real time. Public collab would be classified as live project pedagogy, but a specific brand. So 
I think there's there's lots of people who work in that way as well. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Maybe 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 I could think about myself in that way. Maybe it might help actually. But I I yeah I guess I haven't thought about it before meeting you and before you suggested it. Mm. I, I haven't really thought about it in that. Way. I suppose I just think about your idea of the project and what you wanted from your students, even if you're not necessarily going to demand that they give you that answer. Yes, you changed my life, but you're pushing them to see the world in a new way or to see the world thinking about sustainability and those things that you'd done in, in Dublin and the way that you were kind of seeing the world from this multifaceted way. So, yeah. I don't know, maybe as teachers, we're always trying to be activists I in, think, in a way. Yeah. We want to change lives. We want to open up people's minds. Yeah, and build conversation and build conversation around issues that aren't related to the neoliberal agenda about more and, and about kind of bigger issues. This isn't, I really fundamentally believe that the university is not about training people to be employees. You know, it is about thought. It is about contributing to knowledge bases. It, it's about ideas. It's about creating new ideas. It's such a fabulous concept. I think it's a real missed opportunity to see it as a place of getting training for a job. My final question would be, we'll listen back to these conversations when we're 20 years, 30 years. And others will, you know. <laughs> when we're rowing down yeah, the yeah, towpath. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> but there, I think it is not safe to say that we're in a sort of before time. We're always talking about this dystopian or utopian future. There is a sort of a you know, raising of awareness amongst public bodies, you know, the general population, families, these conversations have been had absolutely all the time and we use all the time. So where are we now in that sort of ramping up that conversation to action and implementation? Mm. I've just thrown out that last big stupid question I had to get out yeah. off my chest. Try to be more concise, you know. If in 30, 20 years you're listening back, what do you think might have happened in the meantime to, yeah. for implementation to be the prize? I think it's going to be incredibly difficult, first of all. I think there's going to be many, many, many situations where it's going to be, people are going to feel like it's toss up between nature and hard engineering solutions, between like just getting something done or going out to kind of some longer design process or co-design process that's going to take into account lots of people's ideas and feelings about it but I think I think ultimately people will find out that that's where they have to be because to avoid breakdown of society you, you'll need there to be some kind of governance structure and that governance structure is going to have a way of dealing with problems but also bringing people along with you and I just think that the projects themselves are really good vehicles for education and for helping people to learn about what needs to be done in what way and what are the different options. And I think, you know, people have huge capacity to deal with complexity. I think there will be a kind of a, a slow realisation that there should be more trust in people's capacity to understand the complexities involved and to bring them along with us because actually that's the only way things are going to happen in, in any kind of peaceful way because the problems are going to be big and we need to have a nimbleness about dealing with them and a nimble educated public. I would say what's going to happen is that there will be probably a lot more investment in 
slowing down process of actually coming up with decisions into those being genuine and substantial consultation processes that will actually take into account lots of different views but still actually progress will have to be made and not everybody is going to be happy with an outcome it's just facts of life and I think that but I do think that the process of getting to those stages will be more informed and I really hope that the potential of using the process as an educational piece will be realised and I think that's a smart thing to do. I hope that's what happens. That's brilliant. Are the oak trees still growing mm. on that hill? <laughs> they, they are. There's about three or four of them growing. And then last year, to cover the carbon associated with the flight to New York, I, I planted another 40. 